0: Amen. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Uh, This morning, we'll continue in Isaiah chapter 44. We'll pick back up in Isaiah chapter 44. This morning, I'll read verses 9 through 23. It's printed in your bulletin if you would like to follow along there. Hear now God's holy and errant and living Word. All who fashion idols are nothing and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together." The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat He roasted and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They know not, nor do they discern for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I toasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I have an uncle that I got to see back in, uh, around Thanksgiving who um, is about a decade older than me, and he has committed or, or uh, has employed much of his adult life outside of his vocation. He's, he's, he works a secular job, but he has committed a great deal of his time outside of that job to evangelism. He has gone and trained. He's traveled abroad, actually, to attend training and to train others to share the gospel. And he continues to do that today. He goes to college campuses and different places uh, to train students to share the gospel and to show them and to, to walk alongside them. And in our conversation recently, he said there's been something that's been encouraging to him as he's been onto college campuses lately. He says there seems to be in this generation a willingness to admit there's something bigger than us. There's, there's something outside of us that we can't see and know and understand that, that's outside of us that's bigger than us, and, and there's an openness to talk about spirituality. Actually, I had a college student tell me that just very recently, making that same observation. The problem is, is where do we look, though? Where do we look to satisfy that? And that, that compulsion is not new, Actually, you can look back throughout human history to every corner of the globe, and there is, in people, this longing to somehow understand the divine. There's a compulsion to worship something. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we read that God has put eternity into the heart of man. God created us with a longing for eternity. It's, it's woven into us. And so even those who look to other things have to acknowledge that this world just can't provide ultimately what we need. So there's this longing to know more. Maybe you've heard it sung this way. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try and I try and I try. That's the Rolling Stones, by the way an acknowledgment that this world just can't satisfy what I need. So where do we look? That brings us to this morning's passage, dealing with idolatry. If, you, if you've been here during our study of Isaiah or if you read other other Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah, for instance, you'll know that God's people will enter into judgment and exile, be disciplined primarily for the sin of idolatry. Here's what idolatry is. This is a quote that's in your bulletin and the reflections. Scott Hafman says this. He says, he defines idolatry this way. Idolatry is the practice of seeking the source and provision of what we need, either physically or emotionally, in someone or something other than the one true God. It is the tragically pathetic attempt to squeeze life out of lifeless forms that cannot help us meet our real needs. That's what idolatry is. This attempt to squeeze out of lifeless forms something that will give us what we need as we know there's something bigger than us, there's something greater, and this world just cannot satisfy that need. So we're going to look at this passage this morning in two sections, uh, beginning in verse 9 through verse 20. If, you're an out, if you like to have an outline, this could be outline point number one, Roman numeral one, and that is we'll look at the gods we fashion fail us and condemn us. The gods that we fashion fail us and condemn us. It's in verses 9 through 20. But then we'll see in verses 21 through 23, the second point, and that is the God who formed us forgives and redeems. The God who formed us forgives and redeems. So let's look first at verse 9 through 20. And really, it begins with just a word of judgment, just a declaration from God about those who make idols and the idols themselves. Look at, look at what Isaiah writes, all who fashion idols are Nothing. That word means meaning, meaningless. They're futile. It's futile, like futility. It's meaningless. They fashion their precious things, these little darlings, the things that are precious to them, and then they devote themselves to them. Those things that they can make themselves, they devote emotional time to them, thought time, hope even. They place in this thing that they've made. Now, our God-given creator imbued um, um, purpose in life is that we would know him. That we would know our creator and glorify him and enjoy him. That's what God has created us for. And he even gave us some guardrails to help keep us in that purpose. The purpose to know him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him. But he set these guardrails. One of them is you shall have no other gods before me. Another one is, you shall not make any graven images to yourself. The the first two of the commandments, those are guardrails to protect us from veering off, from getting off of the path of this purpose. Well, the idol maker turns his car 90 degrees and plunges right over the ledge, through the guardrail, over the ledge. So God says of this this person, his life is purposelessness or purposeless. It's meaningless. He's abandoned the very thing he's been created for. And then he says of the idol and the things they delight in do not profit. (laughs) These man-made objects of worship don't bring any advantage. They don't provide anything. And even if we were to imagine that this idol makes some promise, which it really can't, but even if it could make a promise, it can't keep that promise. So the idol maker is meaningless, he's abandoned God-given purpose, the idol itself is no advantage to to the idol maker or to the idolater and then finally in verse nine, we read, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Others who would say, you're doing good work making this idol, be strong, continue, keep doing it. Oh, this idol will give you everything you want in life and more, these other witnesses or companions God says of them, they're blind. They don't understand. And eventually, what is ahead of them is shame. Now, following this, then, we begin to move into a section that is regarded by some as one of the most uh, unique and and, and even astounding works of ancient literature. That's verses 9 through 20 here. Because in this passage, we find an ancient text, 2,700 years old, uh, that uses satire so effectively. It stands out, this passage. Now, what is satire? Satire is, and this is according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, satire is the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. Satire is pointing out foolishness in a clever way. And we hear God here speaking through Isaiah, pointing out the foolishness of idolatry. So under this point number one, after this word of judgment in verse nine, then we pick up, we pick up in uh, what follows with the foolishness of idolatry. Now, in verses 10 through 11, God says, call the people together, let them assemble, let them stand up, let them hear what I have to say. But then picking up in verse 12, we look at the foolishness of idolatry. Listen to verse 12 and 13 again. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. The the first thing to note in the foolishness of idolatry, as Isaiah depicts how finite craftsmen form finite gods... No matter how strong the ironsmith may be, no matter how muscular that right or left arm, whatever he hammers with, looks, eventually he's going to meet his limit. Now, I made an admission back in the fall that I have been trying to get up in the morning early and go to the gym. I have yet to return in 2024, so ask me next week if I've gotten back to the gym. It's cold and dark in the morning, but I'm going to try. And if you go to the gym in the morning or in the afternoon, and there'll usually be one or two people who you can tell they've spent a lot of time in the gym. And, and, and you can tell by looking at them. Well, the strongest individual in the gym, whoever he or she may be, no matter how strong they are and how hard they've worked, if you watch them long enough, you'll see they reach a limit. They'll eventually burn out they'll eventually get to a weight that they can't lift or to a point where their bodies are just exhausted. Actually, a couple of months ago, we were at the gym one morning and an ambulance had to show up. Somebody pushed the limit too far. They reached their limit. Well, the ironsmith even, as he fashions this idol with his strong arm, he becomes hungry. He's tired. If he doesn't drink enough water, he grows faint. He's finite. He's finite. But this idea is that here he is trying to to form a powerful being, and he is a finite creator doing it. So here's a a principle, a principle that is forgotten by the idolater, and that, uh, that is that the thing formed can't rise above the one who created it. The thing formed cannot rise above the one who created it. Maybe we need to remember that in our hysteria about AI. People fear that it will take over the world. It can't rise above those who've created it. Now, there are wicked people in the world who may want to use it for ill purposes. But the thing formed cannot rise above the one who formed it. The idolater has forgotten this. He thinks that even though his strength is limited, he's going to form something that has self-sustaining strength. That's foolishness. Also, the carpenter. Notice the carpenter uses tools to measure and sketch out the idol he wants to make. He uses all of his accumulated knowledge about about carving and crafting. Maybe he's had an apprenticeship. Maybe he took classes down at the community college. He's going to apply all of that and make something that reflects the most glorious thing he can imagine. Himself. (laughs) He forms an idol in the image of himself. And then he sets that idol up in his own temple in his house. The idol is simply an, a representation of himself and then he intends to worship it. That's what idolatry really comes back to. So let's pause for a moment and, and we think, well now we don't do this. We don't usually carve images and we put them up thinking they represent a God. Maybe some people do in some ways. But typically we, we, we are a little more sophisticated but we are still idolaters. What are some of the things that we're tempted to worship? Well, it can, right, off the, right off the bat, we know that wealth is a great temptation. Money, wealth, or the things that we can get with our wealth. So, some money or our possessions, or maybe for some, it's their national identity, or the, the strength of the military, whether it's the national military or maybe their own reserve of, of weaponry. That's my hope, that's gonna defend me. Or the, the government's military, that'll be, that's my hope, that's my security. Others, it's, well, no, I don't, I don't put my hope in those things, but I do have a team I like to pull for. And boy, I invest a whole lot of time and emotions and even money to make sure my team wins, because if my team wins, I win. If my team's a champion, I'm a champion. Others, it's their, their looks, or maybe their spouse's looks, or their intelligence, or maybe achievements, maybe it's the number of diplomas on a wall, or, uh, or trophies on the shelf, or, or uh, antlers on the wall, or you name it. We can find any kind of thing that we can think, this, this indicates that I, I have value and worth, and, and, it, and it lets me know that, you know, deep down I'm okay. For others, it's the pursuit of pleasure, personal pleasure, or ultimately just the praise and the affirmation of other people. Now, those aren't all bad things. I'm not saying those are all wrong. But when they become the ultimate thing, when they become the thing that we feel like gives us, that that affirms us, that gives us security and hope, hope for today and bright hope for tomorrow, when we begin to view it that way, then we've made that into an idol. And ultimately, what we want them to do is to reflect well, On us, not on God. Back in Isaiah 44, picking back up in verse 14, there we find that this idol maker, this craftsman, is cutting down trees, cedars and cypress, or maybe an oak even. And he uses this wood for two things. One, to to burn... And then the other is to make an idol out of it. And what we find here is Isaiah is saying, don't you see you're using expendable materials to make what you think will be an infinite God, an eternal God. That's foolishness. It's foolish to think you're gonna take something that is temporal and put your hope in it for eternity. And then finally, what we see in the same section is that dependent creatures arbitrarily make impotent gods that is powerless profitless gods so back to the trees described here these these are trees that notice the 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 idolater he may have planted the trees but he had to wait for them to grow he had to wait for it to rain he couldn't control the growth of these trees he couldn't control control the rain falling this is a dependent craftsman He's dependent on the, some, someone else to cause the tree to grow. Not only that, but he has to have food to sustain him. So this idolater, he takes the tree, he builds a fire with part of it so that he can have food for his finite body. So he can have warmth because if he's exposed to the elements, that could, he could get sick or even die. So he needs warmth, he needs food. All of these things are necessary for the idol maker. He is dependent on things outside of himself. And then he takes another portion of this wood and he carves an idol. He prays to it and he says to it, deliver me. Save me. Save me. Deliver me from what? What do we look to an idol to deliver us from? Meaninglessness. Despair. Hopelessness. This void that's within me, there's, this, there's eternity in my heart, and yet I can't find anything that can fill that. Will you do that for me? This man-made, carved, human-manufactured, contrived, temporal thing. Isaiah says, this is foolishness. Actually, the portion of the tree that was used to build a fire actually helped support life. That was actually useful. The the portion made into an idol, it serves no purpose at all. It doesn't provide anything. So actually what the idol maker does is he ignores the God-given gifts of wood and food and fire and warmth, These, these good things that come down from the father of lights, as James says. He ignores those and instead puts his hope in the portion that he takes and makes into something totally meaningless, the folly of this. This portion of wood consumed by the fire, it it actually gave something. It provided something. It was a gift from God. But the idolater ignores those gifts, ignores the good gifts of God, and makes a God out of them and cries out to it, deliver me, save me. Finally, we see that this person is ultimately delusional and self-condemned. Look at verses 18 through 20. They know not nor do they discern for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand no one considers nor is their knowledge or discernment to say you know half of it I burned in the fire I baked bread on its coals I roasted meat I've eaten shall I make the rest of it an abomination part of this wood has provided me with life am I going to take the other part now and use it to actually be an abomination against God he doesn't think that here we're told that his minds, this idolater's minds, our eyes have been blinded, his mind is clouded. What we find here, as we find in other places of Scripture, is that the one who rejects the Creator who chooses the idol and runs back to it over and over and over, part of God's judgment then is actually to sear the heart, to blind the eyes, to make that person unable to see because this is the path they've longed for. They're getting what they want and they can't see anything else. I was talking to somebody last night who said they had a friend who has spent years, years trying to figure out how to have financial security in life. And they've run after all kind of different things and ways to somehow get enough money to be secure. And actually, they've been taken advantage of over and over and over by people who are always ready. Yeah, I can help you make a quick buck. Until finally, this friend showed up recently and said, you know what? Money can't save me. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) That's God removing the blinders. That's God enabling somebody to see their idol. Pray that God will not allow us to be blind to our idols, that he would allow us to see. Now, let's think, again, what are some of the idols in our lives? Here's what Tim Keller says. Again, this is in your reflections. I think this is a helpful, a helpful um, tool or diagnostic. Tim Keller says, The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. When there's nothing else demanding your attention, where, does, where do your thoughts just always drift to? Keller says that's a good diagnostic to figure out what's the idol. So let's put this in, we're not idol makers. We don't usually cut down trees, uh, most of us, and do this. So let's put it in a, in a common maybe situation today. A man or a woman gets money They have a job. They they get an inheritance, whatever. They they have some wealth, and they spend part of that wealth on food and shelter. They buy medicine. Um, They even buy uh, different things that they need in life, such as toilet paper. We all need that. They use that toilet paper to clean themselves, and it gets flushed down the toilet and into the sewer. But then they take the other part of that inheritance or money, and they use it to spend on the car, the car that he just loves to drive around town and other people see him in. Maybe the big speaker's in the back so, other, so he gets people to look. Just makes him feel good about himself to be in this car. Or maybe she takes the wealth and she uses it to get that gym membership and to get the spray tan and to get some body sculpting and other things because ultimately what she really needs is people to affirm her appearance And the companion that she wants to please the most is the mirror. Maybe she does that. Remember, an idol is anything that we look to other than God Himself to give us worth, to give us purpose, to give us hope, whatever it may be. Now, we can imagine somebody doing that. Maybe we've done that. Isaiah would say, Don't you see the folly of it? Don't you see the folly of placing our hope in something that's temporary and temporal? thinking that if, if we do this, if we build this, if we, if we have these achievements or if we accumulate this wealth or have these kind of friends or this many likes or this many followers, then we'll be somebody. Then we will matter. Isaiah says, you're looking for the infinite and in the finite. And it's folly. We have inside of each of us What can feel like an insatiable need, a demand even, to find something that will give us meaning and worth. Someone who will affirm that our life matters and we aren't simply an inconsequential speck lost in a vast universe. And I'll be honest, I have things that I can be tempted to make idols in my life. Good things, good gifts from God. Like my family. Like my church. (laughs) It's Christ's church, but I can make an idol of it, or the pulpit. Good things that God gives us. We can be tempted to think, that is where I'll find my worth. That is what will give me hope. Actually, God has made us that way. He's made us with this longing, but we're tempted to look to anything other than Him to fill it. So what do we do? What do we do when we have moments where, or maybe even today, where God pulls the blinders back and we begin to say, you know what, I think I've got an idol in my life. Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that God provides in any temptation, in every temptation, he provides a way of escape. And then he goes on to say, flee from idolatry. When we see the temptation to idolatry, maybe even right now, the response should be to flee from it. Well, we can't just flee from something. We have to flee toward something. So if we flee from idolatry, what do we go toward? St. Augustine, the fourth and fifth century early church father, said this. In a prayer, he wrote, you have made us for yourself. He's praying to God. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless Until they find their rest in you. Our hearts will always be restless until they find their rest, God, in you. So, Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, one of the repeated themes, maybe one of the primary themes that has shown up and will continue to see over and over and over is the hope for God's people is God Himself. Our hope and our assurance is the character of God, who He is. His very character is our hope. Because as we've seen in Scripture, He is a God who loves us. He is a God of grace and mercy, and He is just and He is holy. But He is a God who saves. So that brings us to the last verses for today verses 21 to 23 and here is the antidote here's the antidote for idolatry it's the very first word there in verse 21 remember the antidote for idolatry is to remember we commit idolatry even as believers because we forget because we forget so quickly We are so forgetful. So remember, and what we'll see in these verses is that the God who formed us, not the gods we form, but the God who formed us forgives and redeems. So what we flee to, brothers and sisters, when we flee from idolatry is we flee to God. Listen to what Isaiah says, picking up in verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. That's God's covenant people He says, remember this, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. So first, remember the God who formed you. Not the God that you can form. When you're tempted to look at your achievements or your wealth or your whatever it is, the things that you've done, stop and remember that, wait, I have been formed by God. God has formed me. The infinite has formed me, and we could read in Psalm 139, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Absolutely, he formed us in creation and and making each of us. Not only that, but he's formed you spiritually spiritually. As he says to his people Israel here, yeah, he formed them as he called Abram and then blessed Abram's family. He formed them as a, as a nation of people, as a covenant people. How much more can we say now as the church of Jesus Christ, as his covenant people from, who are Jew and Gentile, he's formed us. He has formed you. He has taken dead, stony hearts and given us hearts of flesh. And he didn't just save you individually, he has formed us together as a spiritual household in which his spirit will reside. He's formed us as a covenant people. And not only that, you know this word form if you've been here, because this word shows up in Isaiah often. The word formed is a word used in, in the potter's house. It's the potter's hand forming. So he hasn't only formed us in creation and formed us spiritually to be a people, but he's the God who continues to form us by sanctifying us. He's continuing to shape and mold us and apply pressure and and create something beautiful for his use and his glory. So remember the God who formed you. But not only that, notice that the God who formed you promises you will not be forgotten by me. (laughs) We may be forgetful, but he's not. He's not. He will not forget you. He will not abandon you. Also, verse 22 now remember the God who forgave you. Verse 22 I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. I have blotted them out. I've blotted them out. Return to me, for I've redeemed you, he says. Last week, we talked about this term, blot out. I'll just touch on it briefly. In the Old Testament, it shows up first in the story of the flood, where God blotted out people out of his judgment. It's a word that represents God's judgment, wiping people away. Says he blotted out all who had breath, except those who were in the ark. Moses says, don't blot, or, or talks about blotting someone's name out of his book. That's judging someone. But notice what he says here. I have blotted out not you, but your transgression. I have judged your sin, he says. Back in chapter 43, verse 25, he says something very similar. He says, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why would God do that? He says, for my own sake. Why would God judge the sins of his enemies. Why would God blot out and erase the sins of people who've committed idolatry against him? Who've, who have created with their own hands and their own mouths and their own praise of something, they've made it into an abomination. Why would God ever forgive such one? He says, for my own sake. Because you can look around you, you can look out these windows, or like friends who just got back from Colorado who got to see the mountains that God formed, or maybe you've been somewhere else beautiful and seen His creation, and you're like, man, God is powerful. He is powerful, and He's so creative, and there's so much variety. He displays that in creation. Or maybe you're aware of God's judgments, and you read about them, and you're like, man, God is just, He is holy, He does not take sin lightly. His judgment, His justice is revealed in His judgments, absolutely. But it is in salvation, it is in forgiving sin that we see His mercy and His grace. And we see that God loves even to the point of giving His own Son. That is why in Scripture we read, the angels sing when someone comes to faith. The angels sing and rejoice when God forgives and welcomes the lost sheep into the fold because it is in his redeeming work that his glory is most fully displayed for all creation to see and the angels delight in it. So remember the God who forgives. How do we know, the, how do we have the assurance of God's forgiveness? Let me read Colossians 2 13 and 14. How did God blot out our transgressions? How did he judge our sin without judging us? You, Paul writes in Colossians 2 who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is, with Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands how did he how did he forgive us our trespasses how did he cancel the record of debt that stood against us he set it aside paul says by nailing it to the cross he judged your sin on the cross and not your sin, but as we sang earlier, but in whole. Every last bit of guilt has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord, Spafford said. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Remember the God who's forgiven you and who redeemed you. Notice he says, return to me, not so that I can redeem you. He says, return to me for I have redeemed you. Our movements toward God are in response to what He has done for us. Praise God for that. Finally, verse 23, we then hear this eruption, this eruption coming from Isaiah. As he speaks, he says, Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. God has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, forests, every tree in it. Now, what we hear now is a depiction of this Creation-wide, the whole cosmos erupts into praise. This is more than just God bringing the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. This is even more than just God delivering the exiles from bondage in Babylon. This is response to God's redeeming work in bringing all of his elect, all of his saved into fellowship. This is the messianic work. This is praise for God's work for your salvation even. So we worship, as we remember the God who forgives and the God who formed us, we worship the God who's redeemed us. Now, in John's first epistle, so First John, you can read in chapter two, I believe it is, where he talks about the things that will draw us away. The, the things in this world, the delight of our eyes, Kind of like the passions of our flesh. Those things, he, he warns, he says, they'll draw us away. You can read this incredible epistle that is about God's love for us and the assurance of hope that is ours in him. But he closes that epistle with these words. The very last thing that John says to the church in that letter is this. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's saying to believers, be on guard. Be on guard. You have to keep yourself from idols. How do we keep ourselves from idols? We remember. What do we remember? Let me close with Martin Luther, if I may, this morning. Martin Luther wrote this. I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. To wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. He has to remember that the God who forgives. He continues, the gospel wills me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is. therefore, we should know this article well. Teach it to each others, and he says, and beat it into their heads continually. Brothers and sisters, we need to beat the gospel into each other's heads continually. (laughs) We need to remember the God who formed us. We need to remember the God who forgives us. We need to remember the God who redeems us, and that will keep us from idols. And when we do see idols, when God allows us by His Spirit's work to have eyes to see those things that would rob us of, being, of resting in Christ when we see those flee from those idols and run back to that gospel, run right back to God over and over. May God bless us today through the reading, the proclamation of His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your, your grace and Your kindness that You have shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank You for the gift of Your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us a growing and abiding faith in Christ. Lord, help us to see the hope that is ours, that we have hope not in a temporal idol, not in something made of of, um, matter that will pass away, but that we have the true and living God who's revealed himself to us. That you've put eternity into our hearts and that you fill that longing with yourself So Lord Jesus, help us today and in the coming days and in the coming year to flee from idols and to run to you and to rest in you. We thank you that you have given us these promises and that you keep every single one. We thank you that our sins are nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. We thank you that we are redeemed and loved and saved for all eternity. Help us to stand firm in that and to rest and trust in you. In Christ's name, amen.